All right, you may be seated. Please open up to Genesis 18. Genesis 18. And I want to begin in prayer. Let's pray. God, you're good. We love you. And uh, Father, we need you. We need you in so many areas of our life. But more than anything, we need you to open our mind to what you're doing in this world. What you're doing around us. And how patient you are with us. Help us, Father, to um, digest your scriptures, but also apply them to our life, so we will think rightly. I like how Bob talked about the importance of theology. We need to understand, God, the way you work, in the way that you operate within a world that doesn't make a lot of sense to us. We need your perspective. And so, Father, I pray, number one, you would help me to properly teach the Scripture, but number two, that your Holy Spirit would take us into your counsel and help us understand your mind. And then, um, Father, I just pray that what is said really brings glory to Jesus. He's deserving of everything. We love you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I uh, graduated Moody Bible Institute. When I went to Moody Bible Institute, we would often do what is called open-air evangelism. What open-air evangelism is, is you go to the streets and you ask people the gospel. You just talk to them. You try to help people understand what the gospel is. And we would often have a clipboard with a bunch of questions to try to get people who are you know, walking down the magnificent mile going to the water tower place, and we would stand on the corner and try to ask questions like, do you believe in God? Or who is Jesus? Or are you spiritual? You know, just anything to get them talking about God. But often, people didn't want to talk to you. They thought you were a Mormon or something. You know, they'd ignore you. But there was one question that you would ask, and people seemed to always have an opinion. I don't like this question personally, and you'll understand why, but um, here's the question. If you were God, what would you do differently in this world? What would you change? What would you do differently if you were God? It seemed like everybody had an opinion on that question. Ask people that. Everybody will have an opinion on that. Here's some of the average answers. I would get rid of all money. Why do we need money? Let's get rid of money. People like to say, I'd forgive all debt. I'd make everyone rich. It always had to do with money, it seemed like. Then some people would say stuff like, I would have no moral laws. I don't know why he has to have moral laws. Just let people do whatever they want to do. So regardless of the answer, it seems like all the respondents thought they could do a better job of running the world than God the Father is doing right now. To some degree, if we could get into your brain, I think you do too. I think in some sense, you think you could probably do a little bit better job. I know I do, if I'd be honest with you. I mean, sometimes I look in the mirror and I don't understand why he made me like this, you know? Like when he was passing out noses, I think he thought he was passing out roses, and he gave me a big red one, you know? I wonder why. It's a bad joke. My dad would tell it. Still doesn't bring much laughter. Are you guys awake this morning? What is going on? That's funny. 
It's better when my dad told it? Yeah, probably was. Probably was. And we laughed enough last week, so we're done with laughing. No more laughing. <laughs> so Jerry had a little bit left. A little bit left. Anyhow, let's, Jerry, we're trying to be serious here. Let's continue on. But if God just took our advice, if he just took our advice, especially when we pray to him, that is, if we pray to him, and he tweaked a few things here, salted a little piece over there, gave me more money right now, healed everybody that I love. If he just did those kind of things, the world would be a much better place. It just would be. From my vantage point, I think I could really help God rule the world. I could almost make it like heaven if he would do it the way I would want him to. I think Abraham did too. We're going to see Abraham discussing things with God. And he has his opinion on things. But there's one major problem with the way we perceive the world, and I think the way to some degree Abraham perceives it. And that little problem is called sin. The world is really messed up. Like really messed up. And it is much worse than we think. And before heaven can come to earth, something needs to be done about it. I want to just show you. I found this clip. It actually goes for five minutes, but I'm only going to show you two minutes. And it's of the year 1968. That's all it's going to be. But imagine if we had a clip like this from 1968 till now. It would go forever. But my question is, as you watch this clip, what would you do about these things if you were God? Just check this out. only two minutes. 
Two minutes. Imagine what God sees every single day, every day. How do you bring justice to this world? That's what we're going to talk about today. And if you can, follow along with me in Genesis 18, 16 to 33. So last week we talked about where these three men came and they visited Abraham and Sarah. They said she's going to have a child. They're going to name him Laughter. They all laughed. She laughed. And then the men get up and they get ready to leave. And that's where we pick up in verse 16. Then the men set out from there and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fares the wicked? Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I'll spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, uh, Behold, I, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I who am but dust and ashes. But suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for a lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five of them. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found. He answered, For the sake of 10. I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. So Abraham ends up joining these three men who are angels. I believe one is the pre-incarnate Christ who he addresses as Lord. And they are talking about the city of Sodom and its future. But before God discloses his plans to Abraham, starting in verse 17, he has a debate with himself whether or not he should include Abraham in the secret 
deliberative process of the divine plan. He's actually talking to himself. It's called a soliloquy. A soliloquy is him talking to himself so the reader can hear him, so we can understand his thoughts. And he's talking about, should I let Abraham in on what we want to do? Hamlet's famous statement was a soliloquy, to be or not to be, that is the question. He's considering whether he should die or not. And here, the question for God is, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Shall I hide? Does God hide himself from people? That's the first thing. Does God hide? Of course he does. Every second of every minute of every day, God makes darkness his covering, as Psalm 18 says. But that's not the primary question. What he's asking is, should I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? That is the real question God's asking. Meaning, should I talk to human beings what's on my mind? Shall I reveal my intentions to mere human beings? The God Almighty, the Creator of the heaven and earth, is contemplating if He should condescend and talk to me and you and mere men? He doesn't have to do that. We almost assume he should. We almost get mad if he doesn't. He doesn't have to do that. How could he, why would he want to confer with me? And why would he want to talk to you for that matter? He's, he created the heavens and the earth. This concept we call in theological terms is revelation. Revelation means God actually chooses to reveal himself and his thoughts and his ways to people. God willingly allows some people to have inside information. He lets people in. This is what 1 Corinthians 2.10 says through 12. However, as it is written, the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that, here's the purpose we've received the Spirit, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. Not just freely understand the grace He's given us, but understand His ways and His workings and His will. The Spirit gives us the inside scoop on things. This whole book is His disclosure to you. He wants you to know Him. He wants you to understand Him. He wants you to be let in on his thoughts. That's amazing to me. I think we just take things for granted. and This is amazing. And so he asked the question here in Genesis, shall I hide from Abraham? Shall I hide from Chris? Shall I hide from Dan Spolstra? I think he'd like to hide from Dan Spolstra, but Dan keeps going after him. And here is the wonder of God. He loves showing himself and his thoughts to those whom he can trust. He loves showing himself to those whom he can trust. He does this, if you look in verse 17, in verse 18, seeing that he does this so that Abraham can teach those who come after him. He's going to be a great nation. So he discloses himself to people he knows are going to carry on his truth. You could say it like this. We are legacy builders for his name, so God selects those he knows will pass on what they receive. 1 Corinthians 4.1 says, 
We are those who are entrusted with the secret things of God. You've been given the secret things of God. We are God's confidants. He lets you in. We are, as it were, the keepers of eternal mysteries. Look at this amazing verse in Amos 3.7. Surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plans to his servants, the prophets. And we have the Spirit. He wants to let us in on what's up. Jesus says in 5.20 that since the Father loves the Son, he shows them what he's doing, and the Son in turn will show us what the Father's doing. In John 15.15, he calls us his friends. And as friends, he wants us to know the Father's business. Now let's bring this down to where we are. And this is really one of my main points. Do you consider yourself God's confidence? confidant, his friend. Do you cherish his thoughts? Here's something very important to think about just in everyday life. How long will you keep telling a friend your secrets if they don't listen to you or they grow bored listening to you? If you have a friend and you tell them the deep things of your heart but they don't really care, will you keep talking to them? Are they really your friends? What if the information you are sharing is really important? I mean, really important. You'll keep sharing with them, but if they don't have the time to listen, why share? True friends and confidants listen. Or do you yawn during sermons and grow tired and bored when reading his word? It's just another sermon. It's just, it's just the Bible. It's just the Bible? The eternal creator's letting you in. I think the problem is we have so many Bibles and different versions, we just don't realize the, the gift that is. Maybe, and you could take it a step further, maybe your lack of interest in, in what God says is why God is sort of silent to many of you. Why share if others don't care? Do you care? That's really just a question I have. So if we go back to the story, the situation is very interesting as it plays out. God starts revealing his plans to Abraham, and he lets him know he's about to send a survey team to Sodom. And the survey team is two angels in the form of two men who are going to go check it out. And the reason why we find in verse 20, the Lord said because of the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah. And the outcry, the outcry with connection to sin is very great. So what is going on? What did he hear? Because he hears something. An outcry is he's hearing human either voices or groans or complaints. Well, in 1313 in Genesis, we learned that the people of Sodom were known to be wicked and they were willfully sinning against the Lord. In Ezekiel 16, we learn that Sodom and her, her daughters, it describes them, they're arrogant, they're overfed and unconcerned, meaning they're unconcerned about the poor and the needy, they're very selfish, and they're haughty, they're proud, and they did detestable things. And detestable, it's in reference to sexually detestable things. They did not 
behave with their bodies as the way they are designed. And then you have here, well, throughout Scripture, this phrase, heard their outcry, can be found in Exodus when God hears the outcry of orphans and widows who are oppressed. In Genesis 4, he hears the blood of the murdered cry out. All throughout the minor prophets, he hears the pain and the tumult of war. And in Jeremiah 50, he hears the outcry against all the wickedness done upon the earth. So the earth itself is crying out to God saying, I'm tired of being the stage for such wickedness. So putting all these clues together, I think what is meant here is that what God hears are horrible human violations against each other physically and sexually. And the rejection of the God's established order, taking things into our own hands and doing it our own way. God can't ignore it. He hears it. And he must do something about it. That's what justice is. Justice means that God cannot allow people to continue to sin with impunity. Impunity means you're getting away with it. No one is ever exempt from the consequences of their action and his perfect will. You break the rules, you cross the line, you'll not, you'll not get away with it. God hears. There's this uh, Russian writer who talked about during the revolution in Russia. He said, uh, a non-indignant God, means a God who didn't get angry, would be an accomplice in the injustice and the deception and the violence. So if he didn't do anything about it, he would almost be an accomplice to it. I can remember my next door neighbor was a seventh grader. She got kidnapped. They found her body three months later hacked into all kinds of pieces in a farm. So if God just says no big deal, what kind of God is that? I don't know exactly what's happening in Sodom. I don't know exactly what he hears, but I know what goes on in our world. And I know God will not turn a blind eye to it. Look at the news on any given day. On any given day, and you got to wonder how God does not hear the outcry. I mean, New Zealand, you don't, does he not hear? I read a story, and I'm just trying to, I'm not trying to use this as a sensational story, but this shocked me. I read it two years ago. The story was about three football players, college football players, after a dorm party, they ravished a helpless girl, and after they got done ravishing that helpless girl, one of the football players took out a bowl of Lucky Charms and read the back of the box as if nothing happened. The banality of evil, that means where evil doesn't shock us anymore, is terrible. Jeremiah 6 says, One of the signs that a nation has become thoroughly corrupt is they've forgotten how to blush. Do you blush anymore? If you don't think America, if that's true of America, then you have not been to Florida during spring break or San Francisco during gay pride. It's disgusting. So, I would say this in part two, God hears, and don't be fooled, God cannot be mocked. So what God does is after he hears in verse 20, he sends down a search party. Verse 20. 
And he says in 21, I will go down to see whether they've done all together according to the outcry. It's kind of like he's doing a reconnaissance mission. He's going to check it out. So they, two angels are sent to Sodom. They turn towards the city. And then it says, verse 22, Abraham stood before the Lord. So those two angels went to Sodom to check it out. Some agents checking out what this is going on. God is standing there, the Lord is standing there, who I think is the pre-incarnate Christ, and it says Abraham is standing before him. This phrase, if you see it throughout Scripture, it's often used, a position somebody's invited by God to take to intercede for others, to pray on behalf of others, to go before the throne. You can stand before the Lord to in a sense, through prayer, negotiate to talk. God wants us to come before him, to pray on behalf of others. In this case, we know who Abraham's thinking about. He starts bringing up, he's sort of haggling with God. That's what a lot of scholars will say. But you know what's on his mind. Somebody who lives in Sodom is very close to him. It's his nephew Lot. At this time, nephew, his nephew Lot is married and has two relatively young daughters. And they're living in Sodom. And he knows what's going on in Sodom. So he's before God. And I guarantee you, he's broken. He knows what Sodom deserves. But he knows if they get what they deserve, the person he loves. So he confers. And he tries to negotiate a lesser sentence. And that's what 26 through 33 is all about. God, if you just find 50, if you find 50, and God's like, okay, if I find 50, how about 45? How about 40? All right, yeah, 40. 40. Sorry, God, I'm sorry, 30. You can, Abe, take it down to 10. You're fine. It's funny. Do you think God, did, do you think God didn't know how many were in there before he sent that team in? I think he had an idea that no one's righteous. Not one. And I think his whole intent, his whole intent with this negotiation, somebody said Abraham's kind of haggling like a vendor. All right, God, I'll pay you five bucks. No, ten, ten bucks. All right, six bucks, God. I'll go wait. How about let's compromise at seven? This is not one of those deals. God is inviting Abraham in to realize it's bad. It's really bad. To me, this is also pretty shocking. No other God, Allah, Krishna, Zeus, Apollo, would ever allow lowly mankind to negotiate with God, to talk to him like that. What other king or president or world leader would allow his subjects to question his judgment? In a sense, if you look at 23 through 25, he says in 23, he's asking, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? It's almost, is he doubting God's goodness? I think he, God's allowing him to talk, to reason together with the Almighty God. And so here's what he's asking. He's kind of talking to God about justice and his justice. It's a, it's a, he's saying, all right, on one side you have a lot of evil people. So Sodom, Sodom, they said at that time, probably had at least 
20,000 people. Let's just say that's a small number. 20,000 compared to 50. I mean, that's a lot of wicked people, percentage-wise. So, or, God, will you keep in mind the few righteous? And Abraham's trying to say, justice is, even if you have a little bit, you shouldn't wipe them out for the sake of that little bit. Are you being merciful if you wipe out the righteous with the wicked? What's more important, you God? Callous punishment or mercy to those who are your own? And in verse 25, he's even addressing God's heart. He said, should not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Far be that from you. I think this whole situation, personally, this whole story, is set up by God to teach Abraham about his justice and his mercy. What's happening here is prayer. Prayer is happening here. So what God does is he's the first to let Abraham in on his plan. That's revelation. God is the one who opens our mind to what's really going on. He didn't even have to tell Abraham what was going on. He, didn't ha- he doesn't have to tell you anything. He didn't have to give you this book. He's kind to you. And then he opens our mind through prayer to see that he is merciful. So you could say it like this. God first comes to us with his words to engage with them, and then he reasons with us to help us see the world as he sees it. And he's willing to negotiate. God wants us to see that he's patient, not wishing for any to come to judgment, hoping all come to repentance. I like what Elizabeth Elliot says about prayer. She says, prayer lays hold of God's plan and becomes the link between his will and its accomplishment on earth. So God already has a plan, and he invites us in to know that plan so we can pray about it and link it to the earth. And then after that, amazing things happen, and we are given the privilege of being the channels of the Holy Spirit's prayer. Prayer does change things. And I would say prayer primarily changes us and our perspective on who God really is and what he's doing. This whole discussion was for Abraham's benefit so he could teach subsequent generations about the person of God. That's our job. God lets you in. Hopefully you come here to learn so you can teach people about God. I think, I think the reason why people think they can do a better job than God is they really don't know him. They don't trust him. I think a lack of faith is primarily because you don't know his heart. You think he's quick to judge. You think he's bitter and angry. No, he's patient. Here's the two things we learn about God in this passage. Number one, number one, he is compelled to help the victim of injustice and violence. He hears the cry of the oppressed. He does. Number two, He doesn't act in power. He acts in mercy. And he is willing to withhold his hand if he can find just a few who are righteous. One writer says this shows the power of the remnant on the world. A small little bit of people is like a small little bit of salt and light. Salt on some meat sprinkled in or some light on a dark room. Put one candle in a dark room and it starts to illuminate. Just one. That's that's the power God gives to the remnant. 
and its intent is to preserve the world, and it allows God to withhold his destruction from being rendered. The eyes of the Lord look to and fro to strongly support those whose hearts are completely his. He's looking for a few righteous people. For us who have limited insight into what God's doing, it's hard to understand how his justice works while this world seems to be spiraling out of control. Like, like this past weekend, you can hear all the pundits. They don't know how to even deal with the, the massacre that happened. They have no idea how to deal with it. Everything becomes political. You've got to be very careful that every issue is not a political issue for you. Quit jumping to politics. Start thinking the way God does. He's broken. Who cares if they're Islamic? They're human beings that he wants for himself. We don't get, we're not broken anymore. Because we don't understand how severe the consequences are going to be when he comes back. I mean, he's really coming back again. I'm not sure we believe that. And when he comes back, it's going to be bad. going to really be bad. The, um, the writer Fleming Rutledge says that Scripture has always been pointing towards the immediate coming triumph of God. That when God triumphs, it's going to be immediate and it's going to, we're not going to be ready for it. This is known as apocalyptic theology. It's a fancy word. Apocalyptic means he's going to reveal himself quickly. The world is broken and we cannot save ourselves. That's part of apocalyptic theology. So God needs to come independent of anything humans can do, either good or bad. Like, we can, uh, we can have all kinds of laws, gun laws, don't murder, be nice. We can have all these laws, but they really don't do much. I mean, I understand we need a civil society, but you still get wicked people who wreck the whole system up. I want you to go to Isaiah 48, 6 to 11. Isaiah 48, 6 to 11. And this is, this is, watch how this mirrors what is happening in Genesis 18. I think this is what's happening right now behind the scenes. But this is what apocalyptic theology is all about. God writes to Isaiah, to the people of Israel, You have heard, now see all this, and will you not declare it? From this time forth, I announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. See, we don't know what's going on. He has to first announce it and show us so we can announce it. Then he writes, They, have create, they are created now, not long ago, before today, you have never heard of them, lest you should see, say, Behold, I knew them. You have never heard, you have never known, from of old your ear has not been opened, for I knew that you would surely deal treacherously and that from before birth you were called a rebel. He's saying how man on their own, we can't save ourselves. We're, we're broken. We're hidden from God. And so, verse 9, for my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it. I restrain it. So he's a merciful God for himself. I know, like, even reading this, I, I was, uh, I've often heard this passage talk about, it's about prayer and how we can 
change the mind of God. And as I was reading it, it's really about deeper, deeper things. And these deep things, I just don't think we think about too often, and they're hard to think about, especially how bad the world really is. It's really that bad. And the day he comes back, it's going to be terrible. That's why I think people like this, the movie uh, Lord of the Rings. Because Lord of the Rings shows, it's three, three movies, you know, and it gets worse and worse and worse. And you have Mordor, and Mordor's going to take over the whole world. You're like, yeah, is anything, anybody going to save it? In one battle, everything happens. One battle, Christ is going to mop up this earth. I don't think we believe that. It's nice on like a Revelation series, but the people that, the people that don't know Christ are going to meet a very terrible God. This is what apocalyptic theology says. Something is terribly wrong. And it must be put right. My sister works in California with women that have been sex, sex trafficked in the United States. Something's wrong. Something's wrong. And so what do we do in the meantime? Because in a way, we are living in between chapter 18 and 19. Because next week, we're going to see when God shows up on Sodom and Gomorrah. Right now, we're in negotiation phases. We're right in the middle. Right now, where we're at when it comes to history, you and I are waiting for his return. I think it's close. I was talking to my son Giovanni last week, and he goes, Dad, when do, you, do you think Jesus will come back in my lifetime? I know everybody asks it, but I think so. And if he does, what will it be like? Look at 2 Thessalonians. I want to end on that. This is what we're supposed to do in the meantime. 2 Thessalonians, Romans, uh, Galatians, you got 1 Thessalonians and 2. Chapter 2, chapter 1. I got like I got to be honest with you. I'm I'm going to be really honest. I like to make you guys entertain when I preach. I want you to be interested. And I'm as I'm studying this, I'm like this is heavy. This is heavy stuff. I don't want to cause people to fall asleep and But here's what I think has happened to us. I don't think when we read the Bible, I don't think we read it as if it is a as if it is an accurate representation of what's going to happen. And so what we would rather have done with the Bible is something to make me laugh than just show me what it means so I can just take it. If you can, try to imagine what I'm about to read. All right? Just try to imagine what I'm about to read. Verse 6. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with afflictions those who afflict you. So this is written to Christians. Some people were really feeling, they were really persecuted, persecuted for believing in Christ. And he's saying... God will repay back trouble for those who trouble you. That's how the NIV says it. God's just. Don't worry about it. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. And when will this relief occur? I mean the ultimate relief when it will all be taken care of. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, revealed revelation, the curtains are going to draw, they're going to open, 
And the Lord Jesus is going to be revealed in heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those on who? Like people that are murderers? Like Hitler? Is that who Vengeance means God's retribution. Who's it going to be given to? Those who do not know God and do not obey the Gospel. Wow, really? I thought he was a nice guy. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. When He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who will believe because of our testimony to you who believe. That phrase, to be marveled at, is always, it's always stopped me because I, I don't really know what that means. Because it says the idea of, okay, we're going to see Jesus coming out of the sky. He's going to come with fire. He's going to start bringing vengeance. And it says, I'm going to marvel. And marvel is kind of a good thing. I think marvel is I'm going to finally see him as he is and I'm going to say, and you might have heard me say this, but I still can't get over this. I think when we finally see Jesus as he is, I'm going to say, I wish I knew he was this great. I wish I would have told people about him. Like he's going to be so overwhelming, we're going to be marveling. We're going to say, this is Jesus? This isn't some stupid movie with superheroes. This is the God of the universe. Are we marveling at him now? No, we're bored to tears. I think we're bored of Jesus. I really do, because we're so busy with all of our fantasy. We've lost him. I know I have to some degree. Remember when I was first saved? Now you're saying, Chris, this isn't a time for confession, but I mean, when I, when I try to let this hit my brain... This is incredible. So then it says, verse 11, so to this end, we always pray for you. That's what Abraham was doing. Praying for Lot. Praying for those who don't know. Praying for those who are suffering in the middle of the persecution. So I'll just end in prayer. I guess... This has been a discombobulated sermon because it's just such a strange concept to me.